The following conversation is a discussion with Dr. Ben Bullock. He is an academic psychologist at Swinburne University. I would like to thank him for sitting down with me and giving me his time to have this thoughtful discussion. And I thank you all for listening. I'm sitting here with Dr. Ben Bullock. He is a psychologist. Um, he specializes in sleep mainly, is that correct? That's correct. I'll let you do the introduction <laughs> of yourself. I think you could do it a lot better than I. <laughs> Thank you, Dale. Um, and yeah, thanks for inviting me onto this uh, podcast. Um, I'm looking forward to my first podcast. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, Dr. Bullock, which means I've done a PhD um, in psychology. And yes, you're right. Um, the focus was largely on, in my PhD project, was largely on sleep um, and the impacts that sleep and circadian rhythms, which are obviously closely tied in with sleep, um, uh, how they play a role in uh, mood as well. And the particular uh, type of mood that I focused on was bipolar disorder, which is a, a fascinating condition. Obviously, from a, um, a research perspective, it's very fascinating. It's obviously very distressing for people who have bipolar disorder. Um, but it is um, a really interesting uh, area, given you have the, um, the highs and the lows um, uh, of mood. Um, so that was my uh, that was my uh, PhD project. Um, I will correct you on one thing. Um, I'm not a psychologist, um, so that there's a very uh, I have to be very careful about that because um, there are quite strict definitions about what training you need to do to be a psychologist. Um, and actually, the term psychologist is a legal term um, where you have to have done a certain type of training to call yourself a psychologist. Um, I didn't haven't done that training, so I didn't do the what we call a um, a master's program, um, where you do professional practice um, and you learn strategies for treatment. So I'm uh, what you would call a um, an academic psychologist, I guess, um, um, where I do research and teaching uh, rather than treating people. Thank you very much, and I am sorry about that. No, I'm... no, no, no. Uh, look, don't apologise. It's it's really one of those things that is more meaningful to me than to other people, um, because if if my colleagues saw that I was trying to represent myself as a psychologist, um, that's not a good thing for for me to do, given I don't have that um, that professional training that my some of my colleagues do. Um, quite a lot of um, psychologists. Sorry, quite a lot of people who have training in uh, psychology like me do work in universities. Um, probably about half to two-thirds also have the professional training that I was talking about, the masters. Um, but there's um, half to a third, a third to a half that um, don't have that professional training. And so we can't officially call ourselves a, a psychologist. Um, and look, there are also very good reasons for that as well because I think the public needs to know that if they're going to see a psychologist, that that person has done the um the the professional training and has got the um appropriate qualification to treat them um in a uh in, a, in an appropriate way let's talk about the circadian rhythm a little bit yeah i think personally uh in today's day and age with so much access to mobile phones to computers we're staring at the screen all the time and obviously that blue light has an effect on us in terms of sleep because we're staring at light all the time. The circadian rhythm works off light and darkness. How is staring at our phones all the time affecting our sleep coming from your professionalism in the circadian rhythm? Mm. 
That's a really good question. Um, and it's something that has been, uh, we're getting more and more knowledge about it. I, I don't, don't think you can get a phone these days that doesn't have a blue light filter on it. Um, so people are becoming more and more aware of the effects of blue light. So blue light is a, um, a narrow bandwidth uh, wavelength form of light um, that is used to create light in an environment where light is not no, no more. Um, the old incandescent globes, you know, the old screw-in ones and the, um, uh, with the little filament in it, <laughs> they were a much softer light. They were actually better for our eyes, particularly at night, than the LED lights that we all see today. LEDs are much more energy efficient. They last longer, but they also are saturated in blue light. Um, now, what blue light does, um, it affects a, a system in the eye that's obviously connected to the brain um, that at certain times of the day and night, um, you have different levels of melatonin. Now, melatonin is the hormone that uh, precipitates sleep. So we have a circadian rhythm in uh, melatonin. It increases after dark and it decreases during the the night time. Um, so that when you get to the waking time of the morning, your melatonin levels are very low, you're feeling more alert, and you're ready to go for the day. But what happens at night is that melatonin rises on a circadian rhythm, on a 24-hour rhythm, when it gets dark. Blue light, um, what my colleagues at Monash University have found, actually suppresses the ability for your brain to release melatonin. So if your melatonin level is rising at, say, 9 o'clock at night and you're still using your blue light device, that blue light is actually entering through your eye and affecting the release of melatonin. So what it does, it delays your sleep onset. Um, and, and that's a problem uh, because it's going to affect your ability to fall asleep, which means you're not getting as much sleep as you would have done if you hadn't have used your blue light device. Um, at night during the day it doesn't really matter uh, as much there are other complications but it's really using blue light devices at night that is the most um, the, the biggest issue the blue light filter on your phone or your tablet whatever you're using um, does help a little bit um, but it still has impacts on your ability your brain's ability to produce melatonin at the time that it's needed you talk about using it during the day doesn't necessarily matter as much. What time would you say during the day would you start to say, okay, maybe put down my mobile phone now and start to look towards more darkness levels, if mm. that if, if that makes sense? Mm. Well, um, you, you made a good point earlier that our circadian rhythms are really closely tied to light and dark. So really, you should probably not be using your iPad um, or your iPhone, whatever, sorry to use brand names, but they're the ones that people know. Um, but any sort of smart device, uh, blue light emitting device, you shouldn't be using it really um, from the point when it starts to get dark um, because that's when your, uh, as I said, your melatonin levels start to rise and get you ready for, for sleep. Now, that's a bit of a problem in winter, right, because it starts to get dark around 5 o'clock. Um, so there's a little bit of flexibility around that. Um, obviously, you can't stop using your um, communi- your main source of communication at five o'clock at night. Um, but you can certainly um, use your blue light filters at that time. Um, and really, 
what you should be doing in terms of your sleep is um, giving yourself about two hours or so before you tend to go to sleep away or off your blue light emitting devices just to allow your melatonin levels to arise as normal um, and and get you ready to go to bed and and sleep. Um, The other thing I wanted to say about that, um, because about half the population probably think, well, I use my blue light device and I go to sleep and I'm fine. There's no problems at all. I have no issues with that. Um, It doesn't keep me awake. And in actual fact, what, again, my colleagues at Monash who do a lot of this sort of research and who I I work with um, on some of these uh, projects have found that there's huge um, individual differences in sensitivity to blue light. So what might be disrupting, what uh, a certain level of blue light might be disrupting for one person may not be disrupting for another person. Um, And I can give a very personal example. For me, blue light interrupts my sleep it stops my melatonin i have a very sensitive blue light system Uh, my wife can watch her ipad right up to the point she falls asleep and has no problems at all so there are individual differences in the sensitivity of your circadian system your sleep system to blue light Um, and they've done some very interesting and and fascinating studies and really well controlled studies showing that those individual differences are, um, are quite significant I'd like to push uh, back against that just a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. So you say everyone has a different um, threshold, I guess you could say, to blue light. Yes. Now, the people that say they get still good sleep, even with blue light exposure, do you think they're saying that without realizing they're not in a deeper sleep as someone who doesn't? Mm. So, for example, they might not be getting enough REM sleep Mm. compared to the person who doesn't. Yeah. That's a good question, um, and it was one that we thought for a long time was the case, that um, people who said the blue light didn't affect them um, were just not aware of the effect that it was having on them. But in actual fact, these studies um, that my colleagues at Monash have done have shown that there is a, there's actually a biological um, individual difference where some people are more sensitive to blue light than others. Um, and uh, it... it uh, it, like for example the, the kind of light that we're exposed to in this room um, will have an impact on some people stopping them sleeping but others, other people just don't have that level of sensitivity in their system um, whether it's a genetic difference whether it's um, a d- difference in upbringing you know family environment that sort of thing we don't know that yet um, but there are certainly um, underlying biological, quite robust individual differences or variations between people in their sensitivity to blue light. Can this be genetic also? Yes, yep, definitely. Um, Well, sorry, let me say, let me um, rephrase that. We are actually doing some studies at the moment in a particular population of people that we know are sensitive to blue light um, and they are people with mood disorders. So that's where my interest comes in. So people with, particularly people with bipolar disorder, but also people with depression, um, have uh, tend to have a greater sensitivity to blue light. So they're the sort of those people that um, have the sensitivity, whereas other people who perhaps don't have depression or bipolar disorder don't have that, that sensitivity or as much of that sensitivity. And so what we're trying to do is we're actually doing a study at the moment. And we're actively recruiting at the moment, actually, for people with bipolar disorder um, to see to evaluate their sensitivity to blue light 
And we're also collecting uh, blood samples, plasma samples, to assess for um, differences in a particular gene that we've identified as a possible explanation or a possible mechanism um, that may explain their sensitivity to blue light. Um, it, it gets quite complicated, but uh, there is a this particular process that manages the melanopsin sensitivity in the, the brain that we are focusing on is served by a single gene, which is very, very rare. There's very few things in the world that are served by a single gene. But this process of um, manipulation of pupil size in the response to blue light and how much blue light gets through um, is served by a, a, a gene um, called OPN4, OPN4, uh, and we're going to assess whether there are differences between people in the activity of that gene. Depression seems to be making its head a lot more common these days than it ever has. I don't, I don't know if that's just because we didn't test for it as much 20 years ago yep. than we do today. So how do we diagnose someone with depression? Um, let me phrase that a little better. How can we know someone is full-blown depressed mm. compared to just sad yep and how do we relate that to the blue light how does sadness and blue light compared to depression and blue light because to mm. me depression and sadness can be correlated extremely uh extremely well i guess yes. yeah oh there's i mean uh people who are depressed are more likely to have more sad emotions and happy emotions definitely um, what you're really talking about there is how do we di- how do we diagnose things? How do we? Um, there's no test to say. So, for if, for example, if I'm having um, I'm having health complications, I can go to a doctor and get a blood test or a blood pressure test, and and they know through lots of years and years and years of research, they know that um, that particular marker um, in your in my blood indicates that I've got. High, uh, you know, higher risk of cholesterol or higher risk of heart disease. We don't have those markers in psychology and psychiatry. Um, we're getting better at it, and they're doing doing lots of research to find those biological markers. But I think the thing we have to remember is that things like depression, things like anxiety, things like bipolar disorder, um, schizophrenia. Yes, there's a biological element to it, but there's a huge psychosocial element to it as well. Um, and so there are things like uh, behavioural interventions that you can do with people uh, around um, uh, connecting with groups of people, so being less isolated. So we know that loneliness is a, a risk factor for um, depression, for example. Um, things we can do with our diet, things we can do with our sleep. We've already spoken a little bit about sleep um, to help our mood. Really what it comes down to, when you, when you get down to the, the crux of it in terms of diagnosing depression, yes, sadness is an element, um, and in particular, sadness that just doesn't go away, right? It's, it's there for weeks, months. Um, but it's not only sadness, it's a lack of um, drive to do things. It's a lack of um, volition or, or initiative to do things. It's just there's no energy there to do it. So there's a the sort of fatigue aspect of it as well. Um, and what we're really looking at is uh, how do you recognize um, a, a, a disorder, a psychological disorder or a psychiatric disorder like depression? Is it interfering with your life? 
So is it stopping you from doing what you sh- you know, want to be doing in your life? So is it affecting your work? Is it affecting your relationships? Is it affecting your family? Um, this is where a psychologist can be really helpful and help someone work through that. Yes, sometimes medication might help. You know, there's evidence that antidepressants work quite well for people who are depressed. Um, not for everybody, but they do work for some people. And sometimes the same medications work for anxiety as well. So there's an underlying biological sort of uh, process, but um, really it's about how is it affecting your everyday functioning. That's when you, um, whether it's a biological thing or whether it's a, um, a non-biological thing, if it's affecting your life, you need help. That's when you see a psychologist. Getting a little bit into diet and the circadian rhythm, I'd like to talk a little bit about caffeine and alcohol consumption. Yes. Caffeine is probably the, I wouldn't say number one drug. A lot of people don't like to see it as a drug, but it is because you can get addicted to it. Yes. It's probably pretty close to alcohol, I'd say. But how can we use caffeine into our circadian rhythm without it affecting our sleep. So what would you say is the best time to have caffeine during the day where it's not going to mess us up at night time? I think, and and I'm sorry to be a little bit um, uh, equivocal on this, and I keep mentioning the fact that there are individual differences in sensitivity to caffeine as well. It's a drug, so there are biological, there are individual differences in our biological susceptibility to the effects of the drug it'll have a much bigger effect on some people than it will on others. So that's the first thing to remember. So someone can have four or five, six cups a day and it'll be fine. Someone else, one or two cups is enough to sort of keep them awake at night. So there are individual differences in that. And and, um, I'm sorry to keep harping on that, but I think it's important to know that there's not one blanket rule for everybody. Um, Certainly, as a general uh, guideline, I would say um, the caffeine takes about... I think it's about eight hours to leave your system, six to eight hours to leave your system. So um, I would be saying anything, if you count back from when you go to bed, so if you go to bed at 11 o'clock, I wouldn't be having a coffee after, say, three o'clock, okay? Um, It's very useful in the morning to help you get going, as I'm sure we're all addicted to coffee in Melbourne, uh, probably the coffee capital of Australia. Um, And uh, it is is certainly a good stimulant. And in fact, it helps focus the brain. um, Caffeine, actually, as a drug, is a a good thing. It it gives us energy. It gives us this uh, bit of drive, a bit of focus. If you have a... um, One thing we haven't spoken about is differences in circadian rhythms. So there are some people, like myself, I'm what we'd call a more of a morning person than an evening person. So for me to get up at six o'clock in the morning is not a huge hassle. Um, I can do it, I get through the day, but then I go to bed early at night. Other people um, are more evening oriented. Getting up at six o'clock in the morning is just not an option for them. Their body is not ready to get up at that time. So they might wake up at, um, they'd be better, if they could choose their own hours to go to work, they might get up at 10, get to work by 11, and then go to bed at one or two o'clock in the morning. and in actual fact, during COVID, we found that that um, people who are evening oriented, who are able to choose their hours a little bit more, actually had a benefit to the amount of sleep they were getting. They were getting more sleep because they didn't have to be at work at you know seven thirty or eight o'clock in the morning. Um, leading, going back to caffeine, people who are evening oriented 
who prefer to sleep in a little bit longer and don't like getting up at that time in the morning and, and find it really difficult, their brain's just not ready to go. So caffeine is the thing that will get them on board and it will get them going in the morning and allow them to kickstart their day and get them through the day. And they might need a few more during the day to keep going. Um, but that's one of the, um, you know, there are, there are benefits to being a more evening-oriented person. There are benefits to being a more morning-oriented morning person. One of the, uh, not the, the opposite of a benefit, a, a consequence of being an evening-type person is you do tend to drink more caffeine. You do tend to seek more stimulating substances like nicotine, um, caffeine, um, you too tend to, uh, uh, the diet doesn't tend to be as good amongst people who are evening oriented because they're always seeking ways to up their level of stimulation throughout the day when they're supposed to be active and energetic and, and on the ball. A lot of people don't realize that what caffeine is actually doing to their brain is there's a thing called adenosine yep. in your brain. I hope yes. I'm pronouncing that properly. Yep. yep. And it basically shoves adenosine off and covers the receptors. Yep. Throughout the whole, I think it was eight hours, you said? Yep. And then what happens is this buildup of adenosine that you've basically blocked off for eight hours floods in, mm -hmm. which is why we have this thing called the caffeine crash. Yes. Which is most likely why people have so many coffees throughout the day. For me personally, now I am... Um, I do like to go to the gym. Mm. I do have pre-workouts, which has an immense amount of stimulants in it. <laughs> so the crash from that is unbelievable. Right. It's I can't define how bad the crash is from that because it has, I think, probably at least six amounts of stimulants in it that when you're coming off it... So I think the caffeine in the one I have at home is roughly about 300 milligrams, right. which is, that's a lot of coffee, a lot of coffee yeah. especially to have all at once. Mm. Um, and you've got things like beta alanine and stuff like that, um, which basically gives you the tingles, that tingle right. sensation. Right. Um, but all these stimulants flooding into my system, obviously other people take it too. Um, and I'm taking this around about, so I finish work at 1.30, I'm probably taking it at 2.30 p.m. And then I still have to get to bed by mm. 8.30, 9 o'clock. Mm. Um, I am becoming a lot more conscious about it now. I do try and stay away from pre-workouts when I can. Sometimes I just can't because, look, we're all human. Some days we're a lot more tired than others. And then there are just circumstances where we can't get around it. Each of us are different. Yep. However, this brings me to alcohol. I'm not a big drinker myself, but a lot of people like to say alcohol helps me sleep. Mm. What is your opinion on this? So the the what we what we know about alcohol, um, that's very interesting. I, I I'm not a gym user myself, I, um, but um, I do know that people do use uh, stimulants to get them through a heavy workout. Um, I wasn't aware of the crash, so that's something you don't hear a lot about. So that's uh, that's very interesting. Um, but yeah, look, essentially you're what you're filling yourself up with things that are there to keep you going, and your body just can't keep doing that. So there's there's got to be a crash afterwards. And you're right, adenosine is that, um, like melatonin, is one of those hormones that only dissipates or goes away once you're asleep. Um, uh, yeah, so it's a really interesting, interesting uh, to hear that perspective. Um, alcohol. So alcohol has so many different effects on the brain. Um, it's not just one thing. Um, we know a lot of other drugs have 
particular specific effects on specific neurotransmitters and, and that sort of thing. Alcohol tends to um, have a, a wide range of effects on people, um, including the, um, the your, uh, your energy levels. Um, it also has different effects at different levels. So it's a kind of a, a kind of a relaxant to a certain level, and then it becomes a um, it becomes a depressant later on. Um, so when you drink too much, and so that's why you kind of tend to it slows neurotransmission in the brain. That's why you can't speak properly. You, you stumble because your your messages going through your body are um, are slowed down. Um, in terms of sleep, it helps you. What it does, it actually because it is a relaxant at mild levels, it does help you get off to sleep. It actually does, um, and that's why the uh, the wine at the end of the day, or the uh, the the beer, the couple of beers at the end of the day, helps you kind of wind down a little bit. It does become a bit of a habit as well, um, because you can't get eventually you can't get to sleep without having a wine or without having a, a beer, which is a little bit problematic. Um, but what it also does, it, it doesn't allow you to get into uh, it, it's. Um, too much alcohol, particularly too much alcohol, yes, it helps you fall asleep, but your deep sleep, you don't get your deep sleep, your restorative sleep. A lot of your restorative sleep, your stage three and four deep sleep occurs early in the night. So when you first fall asleep, you fall into a nice deep sleep. Um, too much alcohol in your blood when you try to go to bed doesn't allow you to get to those deep three and four stages of sleep. Those really restorative, um, uh, recuperating kind of sleep where um, you just cannot be woken up if someone even tries to wake you up. So that's what alcohol does. It stops you getting that deep sleep. Yes, you fall asleep. You sleep a normal amount of time, but you don't get those really deep restorative sleep. And, and um, of course, uh, then you need the coffee the next day to get you going in the morning because you, you haven't had a good sleep. Um, it's a bit of a, a vicious, vicious cycle. Hmm. That brings me to another drug that's becoming more widely used now uh it's becoming a lot more legal i think you know where i'm going with this Um, marijuana yep uh so thc and cbd oil yeah um there are a lot of anecdotal i guess uh things or people that have said it helps them sleep yeah however there's not a lot of studies that have showed it actually helps with sleep Mm -hmm. it has showed that it helps with pain relief and some anxiety, which in turn could help with a better sleep, but it hasn't really shown that it gives you a better sleep in terms of that non-rapid uh, eye movement or mm. rapid eye movement sleep. Mm. What is your opinion on the use of THC or CBD oil in the use of sleep and even the circadian rhythm? Mm. I, 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 my knowledge of this uh, c- um, cannabis, marijuana, cannabidiol... Um, is not as as uh, strong as my understanding of alcohol, but um, you're right. It it it's a bit like alcohol in the sense that at low doses it's a, a relaxant, and so people with anxiety, people with insomnia, it can be really useful to help them get off to sleep. Um, it at certain levels, once you get beyond that first stage of relaxation, um, it then um, becomes a bit of a. It actually creates anxiety. It um, uh, after having too many joints or you know bongs or whatever you whatever you uh, people are doing um and that has the op- it has the opposite effect so 
it's one of those things that's a very a very sensitive um everyone has their own sort of tolerance level um and so you have to be very attuned to that that you're not going overboard um i can't i can't advocate for the use of marijuana for to people for people to take marijuana or use marijuana or um cannabis oil um because as you say it's um it's it's illegal but uh my understanding is it does help some people whether it has any impacts on the circadian rhythm i really don't know um there are people at our university who are doing research on the impacts of cannabidiol which is a, a an active constituent in um cannabis um it's an extract i think um and the effects it has on sleep that's a very very new area and we don't have the data yet um, but it would be very interesting to see what effects it has on sleep and on, on circadian rhythms. They're actually measuring circadian rhythms as well. I'd like to move on a little bit from the circadian rhythm and mm. get to dreams. So yep. Dreams is obviously deeply entangled with sleep. Yep. Dreams can also be entangled with meditation yep. as well. Uh, this gets me a little bit onto the consciousness perspective of sleep. Now, s- dreams in sleep is mainly correlated with REM sleep, not... Yep. Uh, non-rapid eye movement it's not associated with that more rapid eye movement yep what is your opinion on dreams and states of consciousness yeah so this is it's a really fascinating area um, and there's a lot of information that we could talk about so we do know that during REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep, there are certain things that happen that are conducive to dreams. Um, uh, activity in the um, visual cortex um, where we film, form a lot of images. So dreams are very image-based. Um, there are also what's quite fascinating is we have this um, uh, a paralysis of the, um, the core muscles. So it doesn't allow us... So um, it's, it's, it's an important survival mechanism, in fact, because if you were to act out your dreams, you'd put yourself in a lot of danger. So in actual fact, this paralysis of the core muscles um, that help us stand up, help us sit up, help us move around, um, is a really important part of the REM sleep process. Now, some people might say, well, I've seen my dog when they're dreaming, their legs move or um, that sort of thing. That's peripheral muscle. They, they can't actually stand up or get up or walk around. So when you see someone sleepwalking, for example... They're not sleepwalking during a REM sleep period or a dream period. They're sleepwalking during deep sleep um, because during REM, you just cannot um, get up. You cannot move. Uh, sorry, you cannot um, get yourself out of bed to, to do that. Um, so that's the first thing to know about REM sleep. We have about um, five or six REM sleep periods a night. Um, we tend to have more of them towards the morning so we have our deep sleep when we first go to bed and then through the night, um, deep sleep gets less and less in terms of the time it takes up of our sleep and we have more and more of these REM sleep periods. And in actual fact, they're quite active. The brain is quite active during REM sleep. It, it's not a period of unconsciousness as some people like to think. Even during um, deep sleep, you're not in an unconscious state. Um, you're in a what what... Uh, psychologists and, and um, sleep scientists would call an alternative or an alternate state of consciousness. Um, unconsciousness is when you uh, get knocked out in a game of football, for example, um, and you get a concussion. That, that's, that's the medical definition 
um, of conscious uh, of unconsciousness. So sleep is actually an alternate state of consciousness. And there's lots of things going on in the body and the brain at the time. Um, some people like to think there's a message that comes from dreams, um, and and there is a message. Um, the, the, there are three sort of competing or um, main theories of why we dream. Uh, the first one is uh, the old Freud model, Sigmund yeah. Freud, um, that old chestnut. Um, we kind of think that that's probably not... Um, his work was absolutely essential for us to understand dreams, but um, we've come a long way from his ideas of um, dreams being um, expression of repressed um, ang- uh, aggression and um, sexual drives and that sort of thing. Um the the two the two main modern theories are dreams actually are simply random neural firing from the brainstem so the the body's got nothing to do right uh, during sleep so there's all these signals coming from the body coming up through the brainstem and hitting our uh, our our brain but because the front part of the brain the the the, the more highly evolved parts of the brain in the human brain um, cannot process that information essentially it just interprets it in the best way that it possibly can so the best way that it possibly can is based on memory uh, based on what you did during the day Um, it's trying to give meaning to just what essentially are random neural firings that are coming through so that's one theory Um, the second theory is uh, more of a neurocognitive type theory that dreaming is about um processing information that's occurred during the day the idea is that um, during the day you're walking around you're probably only conscious of about at any one time 20 percent of what's happening around you the rest of it there's a lot of world going on around you at any one time your brain is still receiving all these sensory signals and there's all this sensory information but you just don't have time to process it at that time because you're running to the train you're looking for the train timetable you're um, talking to someone you don't have time to process that information it's only during sleep that your brain has time to process all of that um, peripheral information that happened during the day um, and you uh, it, it tries to sort it into things that are meaningful things that are not meaningful um, and uh, tries to sort through the information during sleep so that's more of a neurocognitive type approach and we really don't have um, strong evidence either way we can, we can sort of discard Freud a little bit, but the other two theories are, are kind of almost saying the same thing. It's just different reasons for what's going on and the processes that are going on. Um, and, yeah, so I think that's, um, that, that's the important part about dreams. Everyone dreams. Um, some people have better recall than others. Um, and uh, they're a really important part of normal, healthy sleep. Um, a lot of things go on in dreaming that are not, necessarily connected to the dream itself so there uh, um, uh, it, it increases the sensitivity of um, norepinephrine systems in the brain so neurotransmitters in the brain uh, which are important for um, you know conscious thought and um, things like that um, there are um, it, it, there's a replenishment process that goes on there's the sorting of memories as I said there's a whole range of things that happen during dreams that we um, need to do and in fact if you deprive someone of REM sleep there's lots of experiments have shown this if I wake you up every time that you'd go into a dream sleep if you're in a sleep lab for example uh, 
and I deprive you of that REM sleep, the next time you're able to sleep by your, uh, without me disrupting your sleep, um, you will dream more, so we have what's called an REM rebound, um, than you would have dreamt normally. So that suggests to us that it's like if you deprive someone of food. If you deprive them of food, they're going to need to, for survival, they're going to need to chase other sources of food later on. So if we deprive you of REM sleep for survival, you need to catch up on that REM sleep. So it suggests to us it's a really important part. It's a biological necessity. You might have even heard that. People talk about dreaming as a biological necessity, just like eating food is a biological necessity. I'm not defending Freud here, but I would say most things we remember have some sort of emotional connectivity to it. Yep. Going back to what you just said, a lot of things happen throughout the day. If I walk through a shopping center, hundreds of thousands of people could walk past me and I would never remember any of them. No. Unless there was, let's just say, an altercation, right? I'm going to emotionally interpret that. Um, it's obviously going to go through my prefrontal cortex, then register through my hippocampus. Um, now, if I'm dreaming about something, it's probably going to be something I remember. Yep. Nothing to do with people walking past me, but that emotional that emotional point that just happened. Isn't that what Freud was really talking about? Um, the The problem with Freud's theory is the the the, the reasons why we um, dream. Um, and, and really, he, it was, he had a very um, simple message in a way, is that we have these urges, these aggressive and um, sexual urges during the day that we repress because if we went around expressing our sexual and aggressive urges all the time, we wouldn't function very well in a society. So um, his idea was that we repress that for the purpose of being a functioning member of society um, and it's only at night that those aggressive and sexual dreams, when the frontal cortex is deactivated, if you like, or is not as um, the executive functions aren't as strong, um, that those things come to the fore. So it's the aggression and the um, the sex prob- is is the problem. The sexual urges. You're right. Emotion has a huge um, connection to memory. We remember things that have an emotional impact on us. Um, in your particular example, there there are two reasons for why you would remember a, a something happening. Um, first of all, your attention is drawn to it. So if if, you, if there's a a, um, a fight or a, some something happens, people walking past are outside your attention. You're not focusing on them. But if something salient happens, you're going to draw your attention to it and therefore you're going to remember it. But the other thing to note is that um, anatomically, and this isn't always the case, um, but um, certainly we know that with, with uh, memory and emotion is that we have uh, in, in a particular part of the brain, um, you mentioned the hippocampus. Uh, the hippocampus is where memories are uh, not stored, they're processed um, and, and either um, pushed to other parts of the brain for later recall and that sort of thing. Um, but it's co-located, very closely located to the amygdala. And the amygdala um, is the part of the brain that... Um, Uh, processes emotional content generates emotions and processes emotional content so the fact that the two are so closely located is why we think that um, emotional memories are far more better remembered than more main mundane type memories Um, plus of course as i said if your attention is drawn to something you're going to remember it if your attention's not drawn to it you're not going to remember it 
consciousness and dreaming is a bit of a funny subject. Um, a lot of people, I think almost everyone is fascinated with consciousness these days, especially yeah. in the neurological and psychological aspect of studies. Now, dreaming, we see it as the prefrontal cortex is basically turning off. Uh, you say the visual systems are still active, which I think is at the back of the brain. Back of the brain, that's right. What has uh, the visual system got to do in terms of our dreaming state? Because when we're seeing, aren't we seeing on the inside? Mm, mm. It's a good question. So um, there's, there is a bit of a disconnect there. So your eyes are closed, right? So you're not seeing anything. There's no visual stimulation happening. Um, during an REM sleep period, so that you're right. Um, it's uh, there's a lot of activity in the visual or occipital cortex at the back of the brain, um, which is not necessarily about registering sights or colours or whatever whatever it is coming from the environment. It is um, electrical activity that is um, generating these very random images we have when we're dreaming. Um, uh, dreams very rarely have a storyline. We try and put a storyline on it, but really when you think, if you write down what you dream about, there's not really a storyline because the storyline comes from your uh, frontal cortex that puts a narrative around it and that's not active during... Or sorry, it's active, but it, it's um, far less active than it is during a waking state. So yes, there's a lot of um, activity, brain, electrical chemical activity in the visual cortex at the back of the brain, but it's not things that you're actually seeing at the time. Um, and I, I don't know the reason why. Uh, I mean, I, the, the the visual cortex is a part of the brain that um, we know through um, isolation studies and and, and through um, MRI studies. We know that there's there's something there that's going on during uh, visual perception. But why all that um, activity happens in that part of the brain? Uh, without any visual stimulation coming through the eyes, um, I'm not sure. But it does explain why dreams are often very visual. Um, we don't tend to have a huge um, lot of... Uh, we don't remember the smell of a dream, right? Or smells within the dream. I mean, sometimes we do. Um, it, it's all often very visual and very strikingly strikingly visual. Lots of colours, lots of things happening. Um, we remember what happened. Our storyline is what we saw or what we perceived in our dream rather than... Um, other kind of uh, things that uh, other kind of senses I guess yeah it's funny that you bring that up because we don't remember the noise of the dream either no that's true yeah that's right um, I mean sometimes there is a uh, uh, you know maybe there's a loud noise that sort of um, there's some aspect of it but generally when you ask people about their dreams it's you know what visually happened what did they see in their dream rather than other kind of senses do we have an idea of where dreams come from uh, well, I, I'll go back to that uh, my, my previous question about the um, the, the brain and, and the, those two theories that I talked about. Um, dreams come from processes uh, of processing of information that we weren't aware of during the day, um, or it's just it's literally just random neural, neural firing from the brainstem that has to be interpreted by the brain. Your brain is a an interpretation and understanding machine, right? So it's if there's stimulation coming up from the deep parts of the brain into the cortex, there has to be some sort of um, structure or some sort of understanding put on the information. 
even if that raw information actually doesn't mean anything, it's meaningless. But the brain tries to interpret it in the best way it can. Um, so that's really where dreams come from. It's literally just um, electrical activity, chemical activity like neurotransmitters, that sort of thing, um, trying to be interpreted by a, um, a, a, a brain that is at operating at less than normal capacity. A lot of people like to put a lot of mysticism into mm. dreams. So mm. a separate consciousness. So we got this consciousness that we see all around us right now. You know, mm. we can look around this room, we can talk to each other, this base of consciousness, and then we go to sleep, and then we got a different set of consciousness, which I guess you could say, you know, the, a dog has a different level of consciousness to us. You know, mm. we could argue... I mean, if a dog could talk, the dog would say, oh, the, the grass is yellow, and we could say it's green, and then we could just go back and forward. So there's obviously different levels of that type of consciousness. But a lot of people, getting back to mysticism, like to look at dreams as a whole different state of consciousness, like we are completely out of our brain, mm, mm. if that makes sense. This brings me to psychedelics. Yep, Psychedelics are becoming a lot more prominent now, especially psilocybin aka mushrooms yep they are being looked into the medical profession for use of depression for ptsd not sure about bipolar disorder um not yet what is your stance on the use of psilocybin and psychedelics Mm. in the medical field in terms of psychiatry i think what you'll find is the evidence is not there yet but there are lots of studies going on, um, partic- and including here at Swinburne, on the effects of things like psilocybin uh, and how they affect um, normal brain processing. Um, if we talk, if we look at it from a, uh, a neuroscience kind of perspective, what's going on in the brain when you use psilocybin? Um, or a, some other hallucinogen like um, LSD or... Um, DMT. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, those, uh, what, what's going on, especially with, um, I'm pretty sure, especially with LSD and um, psilocybin, is that there is a lot more crosstalk between different parts of the brain. So what's happening is, um, uh, and the reason why you might use it for, uh, say, depression or, or something like that, is that there may be parts of the brain that aren't functioning um, to their capacity for various reasons. What these substances do is open up those pathways. And so what previously might not be a normal pathway for someone between the visual cortex and the um, frontal lobes, a particular pathway there, a functional pathway, that is not active in someone usually, it just opens that up. And so that's why we have these kind of um, overwhelming experiences with things like psilocybin and LSD because um, our brain is kind of just opening up all these new pathways where things that we were not conscious of ever before. Um, and there's some really fascinating studies showing the brain um, or, you know, using uh, MRI technology to, to vi- visualize the brain under both psilocybin or LSD and um, under normal conditions. And just the amount of activity going on in the brain is far greater using the drugs than not using the drugs. So the idea is that you are, by using these things, you are opening up 
other possibilities within the person's brain to reinterpret events. So, for example, um, um, one of the symptoms of depression is like rumination on a particular distressing thought. Uh, by using something like psilocybin, you can um, open up other interpretations or other ways of looking at that particular uh, uh, situation that your brain is not... It's, it's stuck in a bit of a groove, right? Uh, rumination is thinking about something all the time and not being able to distract yourself from it. So by taking psilocybin, what you're doing is you're um, going around that pathway and opening up different ways of, of looking at it. So I would never say that psilocybin or LSD are a treatment for depression. Um, the evidence is not there yet, but used in controlled circumstances in combination with psychotherapy, um, can, uh, my understanding is it can help that process. There are a lot of people that will dieheartedly say they were addicted to alcohol or smoking or another type of drug and they've taken psilocybin or magic mushrooms and they've completely reversed their situation in pretty much one one sitting. Wow. Um, these are very anecdotal. Um, most publications always usually do some sort of longitudinal study uh, it's pretty hard to do a double-blind placebo study with psilocybin just because it's such a psychoactive drug. There's not really a lot you could play with it. Mm. Um, do you think the trip of psilocybin is necessary for that life change? Because there's a lot of people that say, I saw these things, I spoke to these things, I had this experience and it just changed me. Mm. Or do you think the trip is just a component that comes with something that's actually helping them? That's a really good question. Um, I, without not without knowing a lot of the evidence around it, um, I would probably go with the latter, um, and that is, um, it's helping people. Uh, see things from a, a different perspective or opening up, as I said before, opening up pathways that um, were not there before or were not uh, accessible before. Um, I do believe it has been used in um, uh, in treating substance abuse, uh, like you said. Um, but as you say, it's a lot of, uh, most of it's anecdotal at the moment. And that's okay. A lot of things are anecdotal until we get the science to, to sort of support them. Um, and science costs money, right? So, and as you and as you say, it's really hard to do studies on psilocybin because ha what's the um, inactive or what's the placebo in a in a double blind study? Um, it's quite difficult to do. Uh, but um, yeah, look, I, I think uh, it. I think a lot of the things we're talking about are um, addictions, for example, um, depression is being stuck in a bit of a groove and, and not being able to get out of it. And there are different ways of getting out of that, like sort of jolting you out of that sort of um, situation you're in, whether it's a biological situation, a life situation. One of the ways is, um, uh, you know, in a psychotherapeutic sense, being challenged on your thoughts and th trying to think about things in a different way. Another way is to um, use a, something like psilocybin to just give you that new experience to jolt you out of that, um, uh, that problem that you had, that groove that you were stuck in that unhelpful groove. Um, I think we need to be really, really careful because we also know that um, 
using some substances without proper supervision can be quite detrimental to the mental health of some people. Um, we know that, for example, uh, particularly early use of marijuana, so um, prior to sort of 15, 16 years old, your risk of having a psychotic episode goes up quite a, a, a lot um, later in life. Um, now, it's, it's worse for people who have a family history of, say, schizophrenia, for example. So if you have a family history of schizophrenia, don't use marijuana. It, it really is quite a detrimental effect. It has quite a detrimental effect on you. Um, you obviously have a, a genetic predisposition to experiencing psychotic-like episodes um, because your family or your parents have that um, have been diagnosed with that disorder. All you're doing with marijuana is just providing conditions for that to manifest um, in in your life. And of course, once you've had one episode of psychosis your chance of having another one are, are also high as well. Um, so using these substances, whether they're illegal, illegal, or um, like marijuana, it's not illegal, it's decriminalised. Um, yes, it can have beneficial effects for some people, but you've got to be really careful about addiction, but got to be really careful about your family history um, and use it advisedly, hopefully under the supervision of someone as well under a medical health professional or something like that. But um, I know that that's probably unrealistic to expect that as well. Is there something we can do in our diet to help all these kind of conditions? So you've got conditions like ADHD, yep. conditions like bipolar disorder, uh, anxiety, depression, all that kind of thing. Is there something we can do with our nutrition that mm. can help mediate these effects? Mm. It's yeah, that's a it's a good question. Um, there are there is research around showing that um, certain uh, supplements, um, certain uh, food stuffs are, are better for our mental health. Um, Deakin University, as a researcher at Deakin University, um, Professor Felice Jacker. Um, who does a lot of work on this in this this sort of area and, and a lot of really important work? Um, there's various names for it: um, nutraceuticals. Um, uh, so rather than pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals using naturally occurring substances to um, help people. Um, th- there's the effects are quite small. Um, my understanding of the literature. I'm not deeply into the literature around um, nutrition and mental health, but there's my over uh, my uh, broad understanding is there are quite good effects, but they're very small. So you're not going to, uh, for example, fish oil is one that's used a lot for um, improving physical health and mental health. Um, and there is some evidence around that fish oil is very good for your mental health. It's good for brain health. It's good for physical health, um, gut health, a whole range of things. Um, but if you've had uh, a, a psychotic episode, it's not going to stop you having another psychotic episode. It's going to help. It's one part of the picture, um, but it's not going to... Um, there are other things you've got to deal with, um, like stop taking drugs, like um, uh, getting um, reducing the amount of stress in your life, getting treatment for trauma you might have experienced. Um, these are things that are going to have a more impactful effect on your 
um, chance of having a future psychotic episode or depressive episode or whatever it is. But there's certainly a, a level of um, protection, however minimal, from eating good food, getting good sleep and exercising. They're the three pillars, right, for everything. Exercise, sleep, eating. Good diet, low-fat food, low trans, um, low trans fats, um, lots of vitamins. Uh, and it's, it's, I think the thing also people need to realize, it's not just, okay, if you eat well for a week, that's not going to make any difference. It's got to be a lifestyle change. It's got to occur over months, even years of doing the right things for your... We all know what to do. We all know what the what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating. But being able to do that um, is difficult in the modern lifestyle. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's certainly something we should aim for, for both physical and mental health. With the fats, you're obviously talking about saturated and trans fats, yes. not so much uh, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated fats. Things like uh, fatty fish are very good for us because yes. of the omega threes in them. The DHA and EPA, I think yep. they call it. Yep. Um, I was looking at a study that combined fish oils and ginkgo biloba yep. for the uh, treatment of ADHD. Right. Um, now it showed that it mediated some of the symptoms. It didn't completely cover something like uh, Ritalin or methylphenidate. I think is the proper term for it. Yeah. Um, in terms of ADHD, the medications we currently use for it, all stimulants, just because of the dopamine uh, receptors aren't, I think the dopamine receptors aren't as active as a normal person, which mm. is why they're always seeking out that more dopamine-fueled food, like sugary foods and things like that. Getting back to that sleep thing as well, they can't sleep as well, mm. especially if they have the hyperactivity, their yeah. brain's constantly ticking and ticking. Um, what is your understanding of ginkgo biloba and even fish oils mm. in the effects of ADHD yeah um, again I, I have to be a little bit carefully because I'm not you, it sounds like you've actually read more of it than I <laughs> more of the research than I have um, ADHD my understanding is that the uh, as being a psychology person I try not to look too much into medications although I have to be aware of them of course Um and the effects they have on the brain. Um, Ritalin is 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 highly highly uh, highly successful for people who um, have ADHD. Um, it's a highly um, efficacious treatment. There are side effects, of course, but um, like everything, those drugs are designed synthetically specifically to target a particular brain process, a particular neurotransmitter. Um, and look, to be honest, in some of the cases, we don't even know why they work. Um, some of the there's some research around SSRIs, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are antidepressants, um, that says, okay, they work for some people, not for others. We don't even know why they do work for some people, not for others. We don't even know at the very um, micro level what they're actually doing, but they work. Same with lithium for bipolar disorder. We're learning new things about this, uh, these medications all the time. The more natural substances are not specific, like ginkgo biloba, are not um, specifically designed to um, impact a certain brain neurotransmitter or a certain brain pathway. They're a natural substance, so they're a combination of things, which is good. Um, same with fish oils. They're, they're a combination of things. 
in actual fact, when you isolate, say, one of the active ingredients from ginkgo biloba, it's probably not going to be as effective as if um, you take the substance in its raw form or natural form. So there's ways that these different chemicals within in these substances interact to have their effect. Um, I do know that ginkgo biloba is a, um, quite a, a, a good substance for increasing focus um, and memory, which is a, a, a thing that people with ADHD um, have trouble with, focusing. Um, so it's not surprising that this study has found that it helps people with ADHD to uh, focus their attention more. Um, not as powerfully as Ritalin, as you say, um, but then there's a bit of a weighing up of pros and cons, right? So Ritalin has side effects, maybe ginkgo biloba doesn't. Um, so we, do we want the more powerful effect of Ritalin and accept the side effects or the slightly less powerful ginkgo biloba um, and it's a slight improvement in ADHD symptoms, uh, but not the, it doesn't have any side effects. So it's a, it's a, it's a real um, uh, weighing up of pros and cons. And it, again, to hark back on it, it's probably going to be different for different people as well. Ginkgo biloba, um, one of the side effects is headaches. A lot of people oh, okay. uh, who take it, um, I've taken it myself just for uh, if I'm reading journal articles and peer oh, reviews. Yeah. Look, sometimes, I'm not going to lie, they can get into the point where they get a little bit boring and I'm like, yes. okay, yeah. Um, I spent my life reading them. Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. <laughs> um, however, the only side effect of, I'm not saying it's the only side effect, I'm just saying that's the side effect that some people have quoted, having that vascular headache. Mm. Um, however, Ritalin has huge side effects such as uh, withdrawals. A lot of people mm. can get withdrawals from mm. Ritalin. And Ritalin especially today's day and age, a lot of people who don't even have ADHD have been taking it, which is very, very unfortunate because what it's doing for them is creating that huge, massive uh, norepinephrine release. Mm. And then I feel like those are the type of people who could get addicted to it. ADHD people will probably have a way less um, percentage of getting addicted to Ritalin than someone who is not mm. ADHD based mm. why do you think people who don't have ADHD it's mainly in the school system that they're using it that's uh, high study pressure you know the exams coming up they feel like they need to really study hard so they start taking these drugs um, the problem with taking these drugs uh, that they're getting they're probably getting it from the black market and a lot of black market drugs these days mm are associated with uh, fentanyl now, which is mm. also, that's another subject. But mm. I wanted to get your opinion on people accessing Ritalin who aren't ADHD. Mm. Um, yeah, no, that's a that's a good, good point. So it's uh, recreational use of these. Well, it's not recreational because they're using it for, for academic purposes, I guess. Um, I think the answer to that in my opinion, is it's easy. So if you know how to get it, you know where to get it, um, it's a very simple solution. You take the medication and it gives you this immediate ability to focus. You can train yourself to be fo to focus on reading very boring academic articles or studying, right? You can really train yourself, but that takes years. If you need help right there and then to study for an exam that's going to determine which university you go to and which course you get in, you haven't got years, you've got that moment. And so 
that's quite addictive. Um, it, it's quite it's it's a simple solution. Um, obviously, if you sit back and think about, it, you say, well, if I take this now, I'm going to have these side effects, and it's not going to be very pleasant. And but in that particular moment, it's quite a um, a simple, easy solution um, to for you to take that medication and help you study. And um, that can be that psychological element can be quite attractive as well. Um, when I say psychological, I mean um, the uh, the fact that it's there and it's available. It's a, 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 we're always looking for shortcuts. We want ways to do things really, really quickly and easily. We can get over certain things over many, many years, but we want that thing right immediately then. Um, and if it's going to help us, you know, damn the consequences, I'll deal with those later. Um, so, yeah, look, it's unfortunate um, that people feel the pressure to do so well on, say, exams, like you said, um, in order to, they need something else to help them focus. Um, it's going to have more negative impacts on some people than others. Um, the problem is if you, there's a, there's a behavioral element to it as well, because once you've done it once and you see it works, then you're going to do it again. And then you're going to do it again. And when you get to university, the pressure's not going to change. The pressure to do well on an exam or an assignment and to work hard through that is there again. So you're going to go searching for that substance again to help you and then you'll deal with the consequences or the side effects or whatever it is. So I think using any substance, whether it be caffeine, whether it be alcohol, to achieve certain means, immediate means, um, whether that be to get more energy, to relax, to, um, you know, uh, people with social anxiety often have troubles with alcohol because um, essentially it's helping them relax in, a, in an anxiety-provoking situation. So again, there's that behavioral addiction of, oh, I did this last time, I'll do it again because it made me feel good. And then it, you can't then socialize without having alcohol. So that's a, that's a, another sort of a similar sort of situation. Um, once you get addicted to something, it's so much harder to get off that addiction. The amount of work you need to do to get off that addiction than before you got addicted getting to the the substance is um, uh, is really really tough um, and that can cause problems later on from an evolutionary perspective why do you think we developed things such as ADHD or bipolar disorder ADHD this would just be my wild guess uh, we can ha- uh, they can have a very hyper focus yep so perhaps it was a way to hunt, a better mm. way to hunt. You can have that hyper focus in on, I don't know, just say there's an animal in the distance and whereas other people who don't have it, I don't know, maybe their perception veers off to the right or the left, whereas the ADHD person sees their goal and it's right there because mm. they got that hyper focus. But do you think there's another reason we may have developed these disorders such as ADHD and bipolar disorder, even social anxiety. Mm. These are things that the brain has developed, not something it was just, uh, I don't know, born with. No, that's right. It's something that is evolutionary given to us as a way to, it's a survival mechanism. Yep. So why or how do you think these things developed? And why do you think the brain still thinks they're so important today? Mm. Um. The evolutionary theories on these disorders that you're talking about, um, there's a different one for each 
disorder um, in inverted commas. I mean, I think I think we need to also consider the fact that um, a disorder is only a disorder because it disrupts your life. So having social anxiety actually might be quite functional in some senses if you're an introverted person, right? Um, because you're not interested in socialising with other people. Um, uh, it's only when you're forced to give a speech at university or um, you have to go to parties to meet people that it becomes a problem. Um, same with bipolar disorder. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are benefits to having a susceptibility to hypermania. Hypermania is a, it gives you this energy, right, that, this drive to do really, really well. Um, but then you've got the depression as well that sort of um, you withdraw from the environment and you kind of sit back and um, recuperate. So um, the, the idea of a disorder is, some, is a human construct. It's something we've decided that is, is, is socially determined. Um, maybe in the whole scheme of things, a disorder is not a bad thing. It's just that it, inter- it interferes with your social functioning and that makes it a disorder. Um, from an evolutionary perspective, let me um, take the example of, um, I think you gave a good example of ADHD, of where what, what might be evolutionarily adaptive. The whole understanding of evolution theory, of course, is that things have got to now because they serve some sort of purpose for our survival. And you made the example of ADHD being able to hyper-focus on one particular thing and persist. Um, I would say, uh, like something like bipolar disorder, um, the mania or the hypermania, the, the drive, the energy, um, people who are, uh, we know that people who have um, in a manic state are more likely to take risks. For our survival as a species, taking risks was important. Trying new fruits, trying different foods, um, trying different things, going into spaces where you've never been before, like um, areas you've never been before, that eventually, um, you know, some in evolutionary terms, someone died from doing that. But um, for certain times, having that sort of trait of um, reward responsiveness and, and trying new things and being um, relentless and energetic was good for the survival of the species. Same with depression. There's an idea around depression that it's an inflammatory condition, so uh, physiological inflammation. So um, if you're experiencing physiological inflammation from a, um, uh, something in the environment, it makes sense for you to withdraw from that environment and stay away from that environment and recuperate. Um, the problem is it's not possible to do that all the time these days you can't just go oh i'm feeling depressed i don't want to work for the next six weeks you can't do that so you have to soldier on and you don't get that time to recuperate so yeah so i think i if i was to if i was to um the problem with uh, evolutionary theory is you're always um it's you can't really test hypotheses you making up what you see as a as uh, you're making up what the reason was from what you're seeing in the present day so there's a bit of a, a fundamental flaw in evolutionary theory research, but it's still a, a theory. It's, 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 um, it, we can speculate. We just can't test these theories. And I, the, the, the idea of depression being a, um, a mechanism by which we withdraw from the environment when we're, um, our body is in, in a state of inflammation um, is actually a good one. It makes sense to me. Um, we can't say that it's, 
scientifically valid or fact because we can't test it, but um, certainly theoretically it makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, if you can't test a hypothesis, it's not a scientific fact. It's just a maybe. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, maybe. A, it's a yeah, yeah, that's a cool theory. But if we can't test it, then um, and look, we we also got to be careful we don't fall into the um, trap of thinking that science is the answer to everything. Um, there are just some things that are not um, amenable to scientific investigation or discovery. Um, you know, spirituality, for example. Um, that's not we, we can't say that people don't have a spiritual life. We just can't test it. It's it's not um, test. It's not um, suitable to scientific investigation. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So we can't just fall into that trap of thinking that science is the answer to everything. Yeah, no, that's correct. Um, one thing I not condemn, but I not really a fan of is connecting spirituality with uh, religion per se. I yep. like spirituality to me can just mean meditating. Yep. You know, you're in that meditative state of relaxation or you're trying to get some focus because there's obviously different types of meditation. Um, I've done meditation myself. Uh, I'd actually like to tell you a meditation story hmm. from my personal anecdotal uh, subjective uh, state, I guess. Sure, sure. <laughs> So something that happened to me now, when I, w I was doing a meditation, I um, had iPhones on, uh, I had uh, some music. Uh, it was actually a guided meditation. The, the, it's on YouTube. I can't remember the YouTube video's name anymore, but basically he guides you through this meditation. Mm. Um, so it was completely sensory deprivation. I closed all the doors. I put all the blinds down, covered my eyes with the eye shade, put on my headphones, laid flat on my back on the bed, just listen, uh, listen to the voice, uh, just relaxing one muscle at a time, focusing on my breathing. And I had this, it was really weird. Um, so I was running. I had, I can still remember this very vividly. I was running away, but I was running away from myself. So, right. But I was the person running away. Mm. And then when that other me caught me, the meditation ended it's like i came out of it wow. but in that um circumstance i still knew that i was laying on the bed mm -hmm. and i could still move my body i could still feel my body i could still feel my breathing but i felt that happen as if it was it's like i was dreaming but i could i still knew that i was laying down and still mm -hmm. move my body very weird mm. um and i had this happen to me again but what was uh happening this time was instead of running away from myself there was like this a uh, big dark figure um, and I was kind of moving with it like a yin and yang like yeah, symmetrically right. yeah. and then we we'll, we'll just won right. um, now what this means I have no idea could this being have a dreamlike state kind of like I'm trying to remember what they call it lucid dreaming lucid dream that's what I was thinking yeah. however I th I'm pretty sure in lucid dreaming um, you know you're dreaming but you can't move your physical body that's correct? right yes. but i could still feel my physical body okay so i don't know if i was kind of halfway into a lucid dream mm. so this is as i said this is purely anecdotal mm. um it sounds like a very fascinating um and a very effective uh guided meditation yeah <laughs> uh, which um, is great i wasn't uh too sure what happened mm. it could have just been a um 
halfway lucid dream to where I wasn't completely in it, but I still had some of the effects. I'm mm. not too sure. Mm. But what are your opinions, knowing how the brain works, mm. what happened? Because I'm sure there are other people who have had a similar uh, situation happen to them mm. during this type of meditation. Mm. It's a um, it's it's an interesting um, anecdote, and uh, my first thought was it's like a lucid dream where um, that happens more naturally for some people. Some people have to work really hard to lucid dream, um, but for some people it happens just spontaneously and naturally, and that's what it sounds like for you. Um, the fact that you you had all the it sounds like you had all the characteristics of a dream, but I don't think you were in an REM sleep period because you were just meditating. So. Um, essentially, I would say that it's probably something very similar to the fact to that what I was talking about before about um, uh, uh, different parts of the brain communicating with each other that uh, perhaps haven't communicated very much before. Just during the meditation, you've entered a, a meditative state, which which is um, quite good. Not everyone can get to that state easily. Um, the fact that you're able to is is, is is a good thing because meditation is very good for you um, to help you relax. Um, the narrative part of the dream, I have no idea. You, you'd have to have a, a proper dream interpreter um, sort of go through and, and the meaning of that, what that means. I mean, a recurring dream for a lot of people is being chased, um, which is similar to what you were sort of saying. But often it's not normally the person... It's not normally you chasing you. Normally, it's like a shadowy figure, like a, a figure that um, someone that you don't know and you can't know. Um, you know, Freud would have all sorts of theories around that. Um, if he was alive today, he'd love to uh, interpret that dream for you. Um, what it means, it really depends on your background. Um, whatever story you put to that dream is the story. It's your story. Uh, it's not uh, there's no actual truth to it because it's just imagination really um, so that's kind of the um, that, that would be my kind of reading or interpretation of it there's a there's a, um, a phenomenon also that's closely related um, called sleep paralysis I'm not sure if you're aware yeah, of sleep paralysis where yeah. you're awake but you can't move yes that's right so that's an example of where you wake up during an REM sleep period so there's a a breakthrough i guess um from an rem sleep period your muscles are still completely um inert inactive so you can't you're conscious but you can't sit up and that can be quite a frightening experience actually for some people um throughout history there's been a lot of uh speculation as to what sleep paralysis is so um you might have seen pictures of someone uh, uh sleeping with a a demon on their chest and during that period of time during you know, med- medieval times that was the interpretation i've been visited by a demon um because that's sort of feeling it's a very anxious kind of feeling of, of not being able to breathe uh, not being able to move but being conscious there's often um hallucinations that go along with that as well um hypnopompic or hypnagogic hallucinations um where we imagine things like um, demons. Um, uh, the, the 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 modern phenomenon is imagining being abducted by aliens. So um, this uh, feeling of being um, floating is another experience, and people floating out of the room, bright lights, 
your eyes are open. They're just letting all the light in. Um, shadowy figures. These are all consistent with hallucinations that are going on while you're in a, um, a sleep paralysis state or waking up through, during a dream. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating. It's almost like what you're saying is you're almost a, you're almost in a, a paralysis state. You couldn't move, and you're having a, almost a hallucination at the same time. Um, but it wasn't a visual hallucination. It was just in your your brain. I think it was, wasn't it? You said you weren't actually you didn't actually see yourself running um, outside your body, but it was just in your brain, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's not really a, a hallucination as such. Um, but um, yeah, it's a, I, I don't know. There's, there's an answer in there somewhere. Lucid dreaming, um, uh, meditation, heightened state of relaxation, and some sort of you know visual imagery. There, it's it's a fascinating kind of uh, anecdote. My problem with dream interpretation is, okay, so dreams where you can have a memory recollection of what happened the day before or the week before or whenever, but then you have other dreams which just pretty much have no storyline, mm. make zero sense. They got nothing to do with nothing. How do you in- how do you interpret that? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, a psychodynamic therapist. So there are people around who do follow Freud's theories um, and use them for therapy. They would have a very good uh, understanding of what's going on. They'd be able to help you interpret your own dreams. They don't tell you what your dream's about. They, um, through their experience, they tell you, um, okay, so this sometimes when people see this or have this dream, it means this, but sometimes it means that. Which what makes sense to you? You know, what's the um, what makes sense in in your life? It's a way. Dreams are a way to understand what's going on beneath the surface. Because as I said before, during dreams you don't have any sort of frontal co- uh, sorry uh, any sort of cortical activation going on to sort of help you interpret the dream. So you need some other system like a therapist, like a, a dream interpretation book to help you understand those um, those kind of processes. Um, the message really is your own individual message. Um, it's really up to you to interpret it based on your experiences. And like you said, sometimes it's just random stuff that just has no meaning at all and it's, it's still biologically necessary. Whether you put a storyline to it doesn't matter. You still need to dream. Dr. Bullock, I do thank you for joining me here today on the 3D Session podcast. I would love to absolutely do this again. Yeah, uh, we sure. are running out of time sure. Um, because I do have so much more I'd like to talk about. But again, I do thank you. Is there anything else you would like to add to the listeners before we leave? No, no, no. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate this uh, opportunity. Um, sometimes uh, you don't get this opportunity to kind of... Uh, put out there what you've learned and, and if, you know, with the right questions, it kind of helps you solidify in your own mind what you think about certain things. So being an interviewee is actually quite a, um, a useful process as well. Um, and um, it also helps me understand when someone who's buried in this information and, and reading about it all the time, hearing from someone who doesn't necessarily study it all the time, what their questions they have helps me understand what the general public want to know about as well. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's a um, really interesting process, and uh, appreciate the uh, the chance to talk about these sorts of things. I thank you again. No worries, and everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you. <laughs>